some of you already know, I am a Bible teacher. I'm a chaplain. I'm a Bible teacher for middle school and high school, mostly high school. In fact, uh, Mia, who was uh, doing worship for us this morning, she uh, was one of my students. Uh, she has since graduated. Uh, but I kind of want to walk you into the point I have today. All right, I'm going gonna, uh, gonna to treat this a little bit like it was a lesson because right now, uh, I'm teaching Introduction to Theology to my ninth and 10th graders. Uh, and what we start out with is a little bit of an epistemological survey. And you're thinking, what, what? to ninth and 10th graders? It's basically, how, how do you know what you know? How do we come to the knowledge that we have? And the distinction that I, I like to make for them is the distinction between belief, faith, and knowledge. What are those categories? And uh, one of the things that I, I help them understand in, in walking them to this is I say, well, imagine that you are on the top of a skyscraper. Okay, you are at the top and there are two adjoining skyscrapers. They're very close together and there's a tightrope walker that strings uh, a line across the two. And he has this little balancing pole. I'm losing my papers here. Let's put something out here. And uh, he walks across this. And all, I, I'm imagining all, all you there, my students are all standing there. And he, he goes and he very nimbly goes across this tightrope. And then he looks at you and he says, now how many of you believe that I can do it again? And my students all raise their hand. Well, of course, I mean, we saw him do it the first time. Of course, I believe that he can do it again. So they raise their hand and he does. He does it again, just as nimbly. Then he uh, gets out a wheelbarrow and it's, he, he gets rid of the pole and he gets that wheelbarrow out and he goes. He's a little bit slower this time, but he does it. He's just as nimble. And then he looks at the students and he says, how many of you believe that I can do it again? And they raise their hand. Well, of course, we saw him do it the first time. He can do it again. And he does. This next time, he gets these bags of flour and he fills up the wheelbarrow. And he goes across. He's slower this time. The weight, you could tell, is, is harder. Uh, but he doesn't falter. He makes it all the way across. And he looks at the students and he says, how many of you believe that I can do it again? Of course, they all raise their hand. And he says, but instead of flour, I want to put a person inside. How many believe that I can do it with a person? And they say, well, I mean, there's not much difference. The flour is heavy. A person, yeah, I, I believe he can do it. They all raise their hand. I believe he can do it. And I say, good. How many of you will volunteer? How many of you will volunteer to be in the wheelbarrow? And nobody raises their hand. And I say, good. Now you know the difference between belief and faith. You might believe he can do it, but you don't have faith. Faith has something crucial. It is trust and confidence that the thing you are believing will happen. In other words, are you willing to stake your life on it? And so as we go through this survey of understanding belief and faith and knowledge, I ask them, so 
where do you get your information about Christianity? How, how can you have beliefs and faith and knowledge about elements of Christianity? And they'll say, well, my parents, uh, pastors, uh, my peers, they'll say creation itself declares Jesus. So they'll give various sources. And of course, they all mention the, the crowning jewel of it all, scripture. Scripture as inspired by the Holy Spirit. We get what we know from scripture. And this is important because even though creation itself declares that God exists, um, in fact, people who study cosmology or cosmogony, which is the absolute beginning of the universe, they say, man, when we look at the infinite nature of the universe and all its complexities, it is no doubt in my mind that God exists. And then even on a micro level, you think about Francis Collins. He was the head of the Human Genome Project. He wrote a book called The Language of God because in mapping the human DNA, he said, my goodness, this is the fingerprint of God. But the reality is that nobody's looking at a constellation in the sky or a comet and saying, you know what? I just had an epiphany when I saw this and how complex it was. I realized that Jesus Christ died for my sins and not just mine, but for the sins of the whole world. And that he rose again on the third day in order to redeem sinful humanity. You're going to look and be like, where did you get that from the sky? Nobody looks at the human DNA and says, Wow. We have a fallen sinful nature and we are in absolute need of a savior. And that savior is the person, Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross is what ultimately redeemed us. They don't get it. We get it from scripture. Scripture tells us the specifics of God's redeeming work for humanity. And as I lead the students there, and they are going over how we can believe and have faith and know these certain things. I ask them, now how can we believe and have faith and know these things in the Bible? In other words, how can we trust this document? How can we trust that the Bible is a reliable witness to everything? Now, we, of course, go over uh, the manuscript history of the Bible. We have more extant manuscripts for the Bible, which is ancient manuscripts, than any other historical document by orders of magnitude. We're talking thousands upon thousands. And some, we have a fragment called the P52 that is essentially contemporaneous with the, the apostles themselves. We have so many manuscripts for the Bible that we know that what we read today in our Bibles is exactly what was written. We go, we go over this. We go over the historical critical method and the things that they use there. But there are two principles that we spend some time on. And the first of which is called the principle of self-interest. In other words, it asks, who benefits from this? Who? And this is an important question because you think about... Um, the Church of Latter-day Saints and, and their book uh, where the Doctrine of Covenants 132 is Joseph Smith. He's the founder of Mormonism, literally telling his wife that she needs to be okay with him marrying several other women. 
That's written in the document. It's specifically calling his wife out and says, you need to be okay with the fact that I can exalt other families by virtue of marrying women, some of which are already married to other men, some of which are as young as age 14. A lot of documents in history, you'll notice that things are written that specifically benefit those who are writing it. You ought to be a little suspect if I come to you and say, hey, guys, I just found this ancient document. I'm pretty sure it's from God. And it says, I'm your king. Give me all your money. I, I hope none of you are going to be like, that makes total sense. I believe that. But what happens when we, we look at the Bible with respect to this principle of self-interest? I, I wrote some, some things down. There are a lot, but I, I wrote some things down. Uh, one, of course, is that it doesn't benefit any kings or prophets. The people who are preaching and teaching and even have written this document do not benefit from it. Uh, one of the ones that I, I, I think about specifically, there's two really uh, big ones for me. But for instance, Isaiah, who was a prophet who was teaching the word of God. And this is the benefit he got from teaching this um, he went and he preached to people who were not receptive at all to him forever, for his entire ministry, until he was finally, uh, there are two different traditions, both of which say he was sawed in half. The only disagreement is how. Some say he was put in a log and sawed in half. Others that he was strapped like this and sawed in half from the bottom up. I'm, I'm praying for the log, frankly. But here's a guy who went and said, I'm going to be faithful to the message of God and I am going to get nothing out of it but death. Then there's Jonah. Everybody knows. I know all the kids here know the story of Jonah, right? Here's a guy who's called by God to go and speak to the Ninevites. But I, I'm guessing that none of you remember exactly why he didn't want to go to the Ninevites. So this is the Neo-Assyrians. There's a king called Sennacherib. And uh, they did not, Israel and, and uh, the Assyrians didn't get along because there's a, a pretty bad history of Assyrians taking the Jews, enslaving them, taking their children out of their mother's hands, throwing them against the rocks, murdering their children, taking their women as slaves, and then murdering all the men who could be warriors. And God comes to Jonah and says, I want you to go to them. And I want you to call out my judgment. But look at this. Jonah hates them so much because of that history of a, a terrible history of the, of the absolute malice of the Assyrians and the terrible things that they did to the people. He says, I don't even want to be near them. I don't even care that I'll be calling out judgment. I don't want to be near them. I'm going to go in the opposite direction. Of course, that didn't work out. He gets swallowed by this giant fish. He gets spit up and he's made to go. And then so he very reluctantly goes to the Ninevites. And he calls out judgment. Nothing else. Literally just says, you're all terrible people. God's going to judge you. All right. Am I done? Am I done? But get this. I want, I want to read to you. The real idea behind why Jonah didn't want to go. Because Jonah says it himself. He says this in Jonah 4.2. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said? Lord, when I was still at home. That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. What did he try to forestall? I knew 
that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. In other words, he was so afraid to go to Nineveh because he knew that God is so loving that he could forgive even them. Jonah didn't want to go to these terrible people because he was afraid that God would forgive them. Lo and behold, what happened? Jonah was angry because God forgave them. The Ninevites came out. They were sad and repentant. And so God forgave them. This doesn't benefit the kings or the prophets. The Bible is just rife with examples of taking care of the widow and the orphan and the downtrodden. Don't charge interest to people. Just be loving and kind. This is something where people have died for. You think about the early Christians who are, who are going into the Colosseum and being mauled by animals because they're unwilling to fight other people. They're dying for this belief. It doesn't benefit the people who are preaching and teaching or written it. So believe it or not, that actually leads us to believe it's more trustworthy. Then there's this other one. It's one of my favorite. It's called the principle of embarrassment. And this principle says this. If you have a good reason not to share it because maybe it's embarrassing, but you do anyway, it's probably true. It's probably true. And uh, one of them was, think about Moses. Moses wrote the Torah. That is the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. He wrote that he was leading the Jews out of Egypt, but he sinned. And even though he was leading them to the promised land, he himself wouldn't enter it. Because of his failure. If Moses wrote this and said, I want to make myself look really good. Why would he say that I am a sinner that I myself didn't even get to enter the promised land because of my sin before God? Why would he write about how when he went before God, God came in a burning bush and said, I'm using you. And he says, you can't God. I can't speak well. God says, I'm commanding you. Don't you know that my commandments are my enablements? I'm not going to tell you to do something if I'm not going to enable you to do it. And he says, no, I can't, God. And he's fine. Your brother Aaron will go and speak for you because you're not trusting me. That's embarrassing. There's another really embarrassing one that I think about a lot, which is uh, the story of Noah. I mean, everyone knows the story of the beginning, Adam and Eve, they sin, they fall. Then, then uh, Cain kills Abel because he's jealous. And then this guy, Lamech, I don't know if you know this in early Genesis uh, chapter three, this guy named Lamech who comes out and he literally sings a song about how he has all these women that he's essentially enslaved because he's the first person to have multiple wives. And it's a jig about him being more evil than Cain because he's killed more people. And that's a way of illustrating that the world is really ugly and bad right now where you have people literally boasting of their sin and God surveys the world. And he says, man, everybody is a sinner. Everybody is bad. I'm going to, I am going to wipe it clean and start over. There's only one person out there that is blameless and it's Noah. Noah, take you and your family, get seven clean animals. 
uh, or seven of each clean animal, put it in the ark, and two of, uh, of every other kind, put it in the ark, and I'm going to save you. You are my new beginning, Noah. You're going to be the new Adam. You're going to start it all over. Brand new. 40 days, 40 nights. They land on some unknown mountain. They get out. God puts a rainbow in the sky, and he says, I'm never going to do it again. Noah says, you promise? And God says, it's my covenant. And Noah says, good, because I want to start this baby out right if I'm the new beginning. And he gets hammered drunk. Wait a minute, Noah, you're the new beginning. You're the fresh start. What are you doing? And he's like, I am going to start this baby out with some sin. He gets hammered drunk and passes out naked. That's embarrassing. The new start, the new beginning. I don't have to tell you this, but the Bible is full of the characters doing things that are frankly embarrassing. The leaders even. And so I've led you here and I want to talk about a particular person because in him I see us too. And it is, I think, one of the most embarrassing people in the Bible in terms of the things that they did. This is going to be a profile on the Apostle Peter. See, the, the, the Apostle Peter did some really embarrassing things. But the Apostle Peter is much like we are. And the first point I, I, I want to make, I, I think that you will all at the very least agree with this point. It is this. We are not perfect. We're not perfect. In fact, God, God doesn't call perfect people. It is precisely because we are imperfect that God calls us. See, Peter was not perfect and we are not perfect either. Uh, Jesus says it this way. He says, in Luke chapter 5, 31 through 32, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's just see a little bit of, about how Peter wasn't perfect. If you don't know, the apostle Peter was really the number one disciple in Jesus's entourage of 12. He was the leader. Uh, in fact, in uh, Matthew chapter 14, uh, oh, sorry, Matthew chapter 16, verses 16, Peter is the first disciple. Uh, well, we've lost that. I got to get it. Peter was the first disciple to ever definitively say that Jesus was the Messiah. He said, Jesus... Jesus, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. See that Peter believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied saying this to him right, right after uh, Peter made this proclamation that I believe that you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, Jesus. And so Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, also called Peter, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, Petra, meaning rock. 
And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the kings, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus sees great things in this person, Peter. I mean, Peter had already walked on water for a little bit. He took his eyes off Jesus, so he faltered. But he proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah, the son of the living God. And so Peter said, upon you, I will build my church. You're going to be the leader. Some of you would say, well, Peter's nothing like me then. (laughs) Let Let me get there. We're not done. Because just literally just a few verses later, Peter actually rebukes Jesus. Jesus just got done saying, upon you, I'll build my church. And then Jesus says, by the way, in order to bring all of this about, I have to suffer and I have to die. And Peter says this in verse 22. Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And here is our great founder, the leader of the early church. This is what Jesus says to him then. Remember, he just got done saying, upon you I'll build my church. And now Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. How many of you are Christians in this room who sometimes have human concerns in mind and not the things of God. Come on. All of us, right? Aren't we like Peter? We get it wrong sometimes and we have the wrong things in mind that we're only concerned about the human things. We're like Peter. Here is the reality. If you become a Christian and then thereafter believe yourself to be a finished work, then you are not allowing Jesus to finish his work in you. Do you hear that? If you become a Christian and think you are a finished work, you are not actually allowing Jesus to finish his work in you. Peter was not a finished work. God called him. God used him. But he was imperfect. He was not a finished work. And I think then you'll accept my second point. If you can accept that we're not perfect, then you can accept that we are in progress. Sometimes we look at ourselves and it's easy for us to see that we have imperfections and that we get it wrong. And so we sort of hide them. And we don't want other people to see them. We come to church and we shake hands and we hide the fact that we have struggles, we have problems, and we have hurts. Because everybody, when they're a Christian, is happy and good and perfect, right? Nobody's got any problems. They're good because they have Jesus, right? When we accept our imperfections and our need for God's continuing work in our lives then we will allow God to continue his work in us. As a teacher, one of the things I do for my students, and I do it frequently, frankly, is I let them know when I get it wrong. And I let them know when I have struggles of my own. 
Sometimes I even tell them this sermon that I'm giving to you today is not for you. It is for me. Because God is continuing to work in me. We need to recognize that as Christians. If we are making people feel like when they come here, they need to be perfect. Then they're not allowed to recognize the progress they still need. We're at different stages sometimes. And we need to admit to ourselves our imperfections, admit them to God and invite him in to work his progress in us. And I want to give you, I I did a small list of uh, some of the progress that Peter was still working on. Um, First of all, uh, Peter rebuked Jesus's prediction of his death. We got that, right? He said, Jesus, surely not. And the reason Jesus said it was a stumbling block was because there was only one other person that ever gave Jesus another option. And that was at his temptation before he chose the disciples. Jesus came to redeem sinful humanity. He came to take the kingdoms of earth and bring it back to himself. And Satan said, I will just give it to you. I'll tell you what. None of this. I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth if you but bow to me. And Jesus rebuked Satan. Satan offered a crossless solution. And so when Peter says, surely not, Lord, surely not, there's another way. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block. Jesus himself prayed at the Garden of Gethsemane when he was praying to God. He said, God, if there is another way, but it's got to be your way. If there's another way, let this cup pass from me, but not my will. Yours be done. Peter was a stumbling block. Peter makes a promise to Jesus he can't keep. Jesus even tells Peter, you're going to deny me. And he says, no, Lord, I absolutely will not. I assure you, I will not deny you. And before that happens, um, when Jesus is taken to be arrested, Peter cuts the ear of a guard off, right off his face. This is weird because Peter is with a guy who said, turn the other cheek, love your enemy, treat your neighbor as yourself, love each other. And he cuts the guy's ear off right in front of Jesus. The funny thing is, is that there was another disciple there called Simon the Zealot. Zealots were people who were who were already willing to kill the Romans and often would kill them on roadways and drag their bodies and hide them. Simon the Zealot was very, very used to violence. Yet he didn't raise a sword. It was the apostle Peter. Peter denied, not keeping his promise. He denied Jesus three times. He was not wanting to say he knew Jesus because he was afraid he was going to be arrested too. Uh, Peter went into hiding. After Jesus died, he and the rest of the disciples went into hiding. They, did, they, they believed, but they didn't have faith that this message would endure. They went into hiding. And in Acts 1.6, uh, we see something that's kind of fantastic. Uh, this is Peter. This is after uh, Jesus now has uh, 
resurrected and he comes before the disciples. Uh, this is, this is Peter's understanding that uh, Jesus calls all people to himself. So uh, in Acts 1, 6, uh, Peter says, have you finally come then to, to give the kingdom back to Israel? Peter still believes that the entire work and ministry of Jesus was for the sake of the Jews only. And that he was going to come and reign as king and, and, and free them from Rome. This is after Jesus already resurrected. And it is not until G Peter has already been preaching Jesus that he actually comes to the realization that this message of Jesus is for everybody. So he's already received the Holy Spirit. He's already been in, uh, in jail. He's already been whipped for the sake of his belief. He's already been preaching this to several people and he still believes that you all would not be able to get this message. No Gentile. Nobody could have this message. It's only for the Jews. I don't want to read you Acts 10. How am I doing on time? I'm sorry. I know I'm not supposed to go too long. Okay. I'm, I'm, all right. Acts 10 says this. Now there was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. He was a devout God-fearing man. As, as, as was his household, but he was a Gentile. He was a Gentile who believed in God. He did many acts of charity for the people and prayed for God regularly, or prayed to God regularly. About three o'clock one afternoon, he saw clearly a vision, an angel of God who came in and said to him, Cornelius, staring at him and becoming greatly afraid, Cornelius replied, what is it, Lord? The angel said to him, your prayers and your acts of charity have gone up as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon, who was called Peter. This man is staying as a guest with a man named Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. It's kind of uh, one phenomenal that uh, Peter is progressively getting a little bit better because he's with a tanner and a tanner deals with the skin of animals that frankly would have been unclean. So tanners typically would be on the outskirts of a town because you couldn't go near tanners. They were always ritualistically unclean, yet Peter's with them. So he's with other Jews that others would usually shun, but he's still not going with the Gentiles. And so here's Cornelius who's being called to get Simon, but now, Simon Peter, but Peter wouldn't go to him because he's a Gentile. But this is what uh, happened. Uh, Peter went up on his roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted to eat. But while they were preparing the meal, a trance came over him. So Peter has a vision, a trance, while he's on the roof. He saw heaven opened up and an object, something like a large four foot, uh, sorry, something like a large I lost it. Sheet descending, being let down to earth by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals and reptiles of the earth and wild birds. So these are unclean animals, ones you can't eat. Then a voice said to him, get up, Peter, slaughter and eat. But Peter said, certainly not, Lord, for I have never eaten anything defiled and ritually unclean. The voice spoke to him again a second time. What God has made clean, you must not consider, consider ritually unclean. This is my favorite verse. So the, the uh, angel said, what God has called clean, let no man call unclean. But this verse people don't always notice. And it's really funny. It says, this happened three times. The next verse, this happened. 
What is with Peter in the three times? Surely not. Don't call it unclean. I can't eat it. Don't call it unclean. I won't do it. It's unclean. What God is called clean. Don't call unclean, Peter. Three times. Three times. I have to tell you this. You don't see it yet. But it's my third point. God is actually in this moment preparing Peter. And I'm going to tell you right now that in your own life, if you allow God's progress, you also are allowing him to prepare you. And you don't always get to see what he's preparing you for. But watch this. Watch what God is preparing Peter for. He had to tell Peter three times. So he didn't listen for three times until finally he listened. And then he understood that this was a message that when Cornelius came to him, that he needed to go. This vision was about how Peter needed to accept Gentiles as ones who could also receive the message. And so uh, it says, um, where, where does he end up saying it? He says, uh, Oh yeah, it says about him, all the prophets testify that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So Peter finally, finally says that whoever believes in Jesus receives this. The gospel message, the good news is not just for the Jews. It is for everyone. Peter, the founder of the church, just realized this after already spending tons of time with Jesus, receiving the Holy Spirit, preaching this message, being jailed for it. He finally realizes just now that this message is for everyone. And I want you to see how God prepares us. This is... Um, this is really the last we ever hear of Peter in the book of Acts. There's only one other time at the, at the Jerusalem council, but he pretty much disappears after this. And it is when James, uh, he is um, James the lesser. So he's not the brother of Zebedee or sorry, the son of Zebedee, brother of John. James is killed by King Herod Agrippa. He's taken, killed by a sword in front of everybody. And the Jews are like, we like that. And Herod of Agrippa wants to please the Jews. And he says, oh, if they, if they like that, what if I get the top dog? I'm going to get their number one. And so he gets and he seizes Peter. And he says, after Passover, there's going to be a public trial. And Peter, he's in trouble. So it's right here. When, he's, when he had seized him, that is Peter, he put him in prison, handed him in over, over to four squads. So that would be a total of 16 soldiers guarding Peter. Herod planned to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison. But those in the church were earnestly praying to God for him. There's a sermon right there about the church praying for Peter here. And on that very night, before Herod was going to bring him out, for trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains while guards in front of the door were keeping watch over the prison. Look, he's hemmed in. There's no way out. He's sleeping between two soldiers that literally have him chained to them. Then he's in a cell that's locked with soldiers outside. There's no way out. There's no human way out. He's in trouble. 
Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the prison cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. The angel said to him, fasten your belt and put on your sandals. Peter did so. Then the angel said to him, put on your cloak and follow me. Peter went out and followed him. Here's the crucial line. He did not realize that what was happening through the angel was real. He didn't realize it was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. The last time he was in a vision, he rebuked the angel three times, but he learned his lesson. The moment he saw that angel, he said, all right, I'm not even going to make a fuss. I'm just going to listen right now. I'm not even, I'm not going to deny anything. All right. This is a vision. I get it. I'll just do whatever you say. Cause I realize now that whatever you say is the truth. Had Peter not had that earlier trance, he might not have been prepared for this one. He may have denied it, rebuked it and said, well, there's no way there's too many guards. I'm hemmed in. There's no way this can happen. But he knew now that he ought to trust the Lord. Do you see how in this moment, the progressive work of Jesus in his life prepared him for this moment of freedom? He thought it was a vision just like before. And it wasn't. He was free. And he ends up going and knocking on a, a house door in their, the, where they were praying for him. And they realize my, our prayers have been answered. Of course, they forget to answer the door for a long time, which is a, a, a story later. They leave him out there and he's probably growing anxious. Like, I got to get in here. But what I want you to see is that this person, this person, Peter, the apostle of Jesus, one of the chosen 12 disciples, the person who was called to lead the church was imperfect and in need of God's progressive work in his life. You too are not a finished work. You need Jesus to finish his work in you. Even today, as you stand, you have your imperfections and your mistakes. And Jesus wants to work in you now. As Christians, we don't accept that we are perfect. We accept that we are sick and we are in need of God's healing in our lives. If we are continually accepting Jesus into our imperfections, we are allowing his progressive work and we are allowing him to prepare us for the future. And I am hoping that today that everyone here will be real with their own imperfections. They will call them out and they will give them to Jesus so that Jesus can continue his work in you and that he can prepare you. And uh, I know that many of you probably have stories of how God has prepared you for certain things. Um, but I'm asking you to continue to allow him to prepare you in life. So just remember this, that you are imperfect. You are in progress, but God wants to prepare you for things in your life. And so please remember that. And let me pray, Lord, uh, just thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to, um, to give this message here today. God, I am an unfinished work. God, I know the people here are an unfinished work. And I pray that more than anything else that we would want you to finish your work in us. 
and by wanting God that we would take initiative in giving those things to you. God, that we would not have human concerns in mind, but that we would turn to your concerns, that we would allow you to prepare us for the things of the future, God. That you would use us, God, that you would change and redeem uh, things in our lives that need to be changed and redeemed. God, that you would break chains in our life that need to be broken. God, that you would break things in us that need to be broken, that you would rebuild in us new things, greater things, your things. God, I pray that we would be people who recognize that the church is a place for the sick who are desperately wanting to become healthy in your name and through your power and through your medicine, God, the medicine of the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Lord, we thank you so much that we can gather like this. I pray for the transition. I just pray for the future. And I pray uh, that you would continue to prepare this church, God, to be uh, your body for the world outside. And we love you and and just uh, pray all these things in your precious name. Amen.